way, out of confusion and terror and anxiety. Keep my commandments. It, we get to thinking as evangelicals that Jesus came to erase God's commandments, that Jesus came to open us up to absolute freedom with no restrictions. I mean, didn't, didn't Jesus come to get us out of the law? Well, no, Jesus came to fulfill the law of his father, to obey it perfectly, not, not to obey the add-ons, the extra-biblical things, the, 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 the obnoxious weight of ordinances that the rabbis and the Pharisees had added to it, but to obey God's law and to obey it perfectly. And in Jesus, he embodied God's law, keeping covenant covenant righteousness in himself, and he took God's law with him to the cross and through the grave and up into new life on the other side of the resurrection so that now all of the law, all of God's commandments have been transformed and glorified in Christ. Now faithfulness to God's law is faithfulness to Christ. That's what Paul says in uh, Galatians 6. Paul refers to the law of Christ. Jesus summarize the whole law for us. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. Those are, the, those, are the two, those are the great commandments. And that's a summary of all of God's law. Jesus fulfilled God's law. Jesus summarized God's law. But Jesus did not eradicate God's law. And so today in the church, we're given God's Holy Spirit. And we're given the New Testament scriptures to lead us into truth and to think wisely about how we're to obey this law that has been transformed. It's been killed and resurrected in Jesus. And now how do we conform to it? How do we obey, how do we obey it? And there are a few ways that we do that. First of all, we don't bring animal sacrifices anymore, right? We present our bodies as living sacrifices. In God's law, Israel was a nation of priests. They had special rituals and special diets and special uniforms. We receive this body of information and we say, well, how do those things point us to Jesus and to the new priesthood of all believers? Uh, what kinds of things please God? We find that out in God's law. How, how does God's law direct what kind of society we're supposed to have? Well, those things are in God's law. And then we have the 10 words, the 10 commandments, which also summarize God's law, which are all transformed in Jesus. They're all glorified in Jesus, but all have new covenant application and all require our obedience. A commitment to obeying these commandments and a love for God's law makes us men and women of principle. If we love God's law, and we obey his commandments, we are men and women of principle. That means we are not men and women who are led around principally by our emotions. We are led by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And this is critical. This is absolutely essential that we get this, that we are led by every word that comes from God's mouth and not our own heart that deceives us. The apostles in the upper room are terrified. And if they continue to be governed by their fears, they're headed for collapse. They're headed for disaster. And so Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You must not live this way. And between here and the resurrection, they all doubt. And they manifest fear in different ways until Jesus appears and restores them. And he strengthens them in their faith. And from here on, if they're to please Christ... And they're to be faithful to the commission he gives them. They must be guided by God's precepts. They must be men of principle. 
They must be men who understand and live by truths that are already decided. Guiding precepts that you don't have to come scrambling with, that you don't, you don't have to uh, 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 scramble to come up with things and answers in the heat of the moment. There are things that are already decided. They're part of our muscle memory. We have learned these, and they're part of who we are. So let's just say, theoretically, this is all theoretical, let's just say theoretically, we're faced with some great danger. Our society is faced with some kind of calamity. Having God's law as our starting point, having these principles embedded deep within us means that no matter what, we're not going to violate the principles God has given us. For example, the principle that you shall not steal. So when faced with calamity, we realize that no matter what happens, we're not going to steal. I don't care what happens. We're not going to steal men's livelihoods. We're not going to rob them of their, life, their right to work. We're not going to practice grand-scale theft by inflating the currency. Maybe we have to suspend normal life for a time, but we're not going to institutionalize theft because we're men of principle. That's what we're going to do. You see, you might think that, you know, in times of emergency, all, all bets are off. Well, no, that's not. If the bookstore is on fire, you close the bookstore. But you don't have to tell the bookstore owner to do that. You don't have to make him do that. He closes the bookstore until he can open back up again. If the city is surrounded by Viking invaders, then uh, maybe the farmer's market is closed. But you can't keep it closed forever because people have to eat tomorrow. You see, you don't institutionalize theft by edict, by decree. Not if you are principled. If you're fearful, well, you do that. If you're guided by panic, well, you do that. I mean, who knows what else you're going to do if you're a man of fear. If you're a man of panic, no telling what you're going to do. But if you are principled, you live by God's precepts. Let's just take the fifth commandment, for example, which calls us to honor our father and mother. That is in the first table of God's law under God's authority and under honoring God's name. And great theologians have always recognized that the fifth commandment requires obedience. It requires us to uh, uh, properly obey all all human authority, to, to obey all proper human authority. And for us in the United States, that means allegiance to the contract that we the people have made with each other and with our government. That's part of what we obey. Fifth commandment obedience requires us to be covenant keepers, that we keep covenant, we keep contract. Men of principle, men who love God's law would say, no matter what happens, we are not going to violate the fifth commandment. We're going to keep covenant, even the part of the covenant that forbids all governments from interfering with the free exercise of religion. Whatever happens, we're not going to break covenant. We may counsel, we re may recommend, we may make a plea, but we do not break covenant because we are commandment keepers. We are covenant keepers. Also, no matter what, we're not going to murder. We're going to preserve the lives of the innocent, the elderly, the infirm, the compromised. We're also going to remember that if a man does not work, he does not eat. And if he does not eat, he dies. So we're going to love that part of his life also. How are we going to do that? Well, we need to exercise kingly wisdom and we need to take some precautions. But God's laws aren't at war with each other. 
God never puts us in a position where we have to break a commandment to love our neighbor. The commandments of God define love for our neighbor. God's commandments tell us what love looks like. So the logic that says, I can break a commandment on the way to loving my neighbor or protecting him is the same logic that says murdering infants is compassionate. I mean, it's murder, but it's the most loving thing you can do, right? No, it's not love. And the way we know it's not love is because you're breaking God's commandment on the way to doing it. You cannot break God's commandments in pursuit of loving your neighbor. That's false. You can't do it. Jesus says, if you love me, you're going to care more about my commandments than your feelings. You're going to care more about my commandments than your immediate gut responses to calamity. You're going to care about my precepts, and those things are going to guide you over your fears. Obedience to God's law limits the damage that my feelings can do to you so that you aren't abused by my feelings. Someone may feel he has a right to your wife. Someone may feel he has a right to your house, your property, or he feels that he hates you so much that he has a right to take your life. Well, when God's law is enforced in a society that restrains his feelings, it restrains his sin, it punishes sentiments, emotions, desires that have gone off the rails. This is why, people of God, it is critical that we know God's law, that we obey God's law, that we love God's law because our society is actively training us 24 hours a day, seven days a week, training us to despise God's law and replace it with a sham, a shoddy facsimile, a bad copy, which is shot through with subjectivity and human anxiety, human fear, which all has the appearance of piety. It all looks very compassionate. It has the appearance of morality, but it is the cruelest form of idolatry, subjecting all of society to worship and serve false gods. And you and I need to be aware. We need to have our antennas up uh, and pay attention to what is going on. What are we being sold right now? What are we being taught? I was on a conference call this past week with my friend Steve Wilkins, who uh, came and spoke to us several weeks ago, and he said, pay attention, you are being catechized right now. And, uh, and I said, that's right, we are. We are being catechized. What, in what ways? I want to look at a few of the ways we're being catechized right now. But before I do that, I need to say up front and be clear before there are any misunderstandings that I affirm that there is a virus circling the world that is extremely dangerous to some people and has been extremely devastating in certain parts of the world. I affirm that. I also affirm that you shouldn't lick shopping cart handles and you shouldn't lick doorknobs at Walmart or wherever else you go. I affirm these things. Don't, so don't walk away, well, he, he denies all of, no, I'm not, I'm not. At the same time, can we not agree that there are many powerful and influential people who are opportunistically using this crisis to reshape our society? And we must resist them. We are required to resist them out of our love for God's law. We must resist their, their attempts to catechize us and our children. So what are they teaching us? What are we learning right now? What are, what are we being taught? 
you are being catechized to believe that other people are a source of great harm and danger to you, and you are safest in isolation from others. You're being catechized to view other people as principally sources of disease and infection. That's what other people are. And so when you see another family coming towards you on the sidewalk or another family coming along a park trail, you have to jump out of the way. You have to get away from them. Don't talk to them. Don't say hi. You have to give them a wide berth in the stores. Don't shake hands. Don't greet anybody. Don't hug anybody. Live in a bubble of isolation and expect nobody to ever enter into your sphere. No matter how big you want to make that bubble, don't expect anybody to come into your sphere. My family was at the park the other day, and we heard a guy complaining loudly on his cell phone that hey, there's just too many people out here at this park. Sir, you are at this park. What do you mean there are too many people at this park? I didn't see the sign-up list for when you had the park to yourself. But this is the attitude that we're cultivating, and the expectation of physical isolation is supposed to be the new normal. How many times have you heard that phrase? This is the new normal. This is what we're told. Prepare for the new normal. 70% of North Carolinians recently said they intend to keep this up for however long. If this is the new normal, and if we're all going to go along with it, that means we stop being the church. That means the body of Christ is done in the West. If we're all going to agree that permanent physical isolation is where it's at, the church is done in the West. We have conceded to Gnosticism, and it's over. Now, it may be wise occasionally to take temporary prudent measures. There have been many flu seasons where I have come up to you and I fist bumped you or elbow bumped you rather than shaking your hand. That's, that, those are wise, temporary, prudent measures. Okay, that's extraordinary. That's not the new normal. We must not be okay with re-engineering society, accepting that reimagining of society that's going on right now, and that's what it means to be human because of a temporary crisis. Sooner than our fearful society is ready for it, the church must take the lead in being real people again, sharing meals together, hugging, shaking hands. If there was ever a time in history for us to figure out what the holy kiss is and do it, now's the time. Maybe not today, maybe not today, but sooner than our fearful society is ready for it. You are being catechized to believe that life together, communion and fellowship and assembly is a death sentence for everybody. And it's not. It's not. You are being catechized to believe that people who care about their jobs and who have poured their blood, sweat, and tears into their businesses, you're being catechized that they're greedy. People who have worked hard to provide for themselves and for their families, putting food in their kids' bellies and shoes on their feet, building businesses to generate wealth and opportunities for not only themselves, but for other people. You're being taught that they're a little crazy and they're unhinged for wanting to go back to work. You're being catechized to think that people who stand up for the cause of liberty are selfish, extreme, irresponsible, hateful, irrational, and lawless. That's what you're being taught. None of this is founded on God's law. We don't get any of this from God's law. Where is it coming from? You're being catechized to believe that worship does way more harm than good. Our governor said this past week in a, in a press conference, worship indoors is dangerous. That's what he said. It was unqualified. The only qualifier there was indoors, because he says it's okay to be outdoors right now. Worship indoors is dangerous. 
Don't miss that. He thinks worship is dangerous. Normal Christian worship and communion, like we've done it through wars and pestilence and calamity and natural disaster, the way we've done it for 2,000 years is dangerous. And, and we're not trusted to make any adjustments to keep anybody safe. A federal judge in Illinois called the Russian Orthodox bishops selfish for wanting to continue to have worship. It's dangerous to worship. It's selfish to worship. You're being catechized. Throughout this country, we've had mayors and governors attempt to regulate Christian worship. In various parts of the country, they said no singing, no communion. They said that here in Wake County, no communion, no offering. As if we can't figure out ways to, to do things to take care of our people. As if they love you more than your pastor does. I guarantee you that's not true. That is not true. Roy Cooper does not love you more than I do. The Wake County commissioners do not love you more than I do. I love you more than they do. They think because they love you more than I do, and because they love churches more than their pastors do, they think they can mandate what goes on in Christian worship. Has anyone, other than the most despicable totalitarian tyrants in history, has anyone attempted to regulate Christian worship this way? Assuming that we don't have the sense to govern ourselves. There are cults and there are idolaters who they haven't regulated, but they have put restrictions on the church. Why have regulations come down more strictly on churches than any other organization? It's because they think you are stupid and they think you are childish and they think you are ignorant and untrustworthy people. They think you're the most foolish people around. They also believe that it's their jurisdiction. In my conversations with local officials, they use language like, we shut down our churches here. In other parts of the state, they didn't shut down their churches. We shut down our churches. That's a direct quote. That's what they, they we shut down our churches. What do you mean your churches? What do, you, what do you mean by that? In what sense are we your church? Where do you think you have the authority to shut down churches to begin with? But you're being catechized. You're being catechized to believe that it is the state's jurisdiction to tell churches what to do, and churches don't have any say in the matter. You're being catechized that there is no higher authority in heaven and earth than elected politicians, and you must do what they say. And there are pastors and churches carrying the government's water on this, quoting Romans 13, as if we're duty-bound to do whatever anybody tells us to, no matter what. Do you not remember that the Paul who wrote Romans 13 was the same Paul who was in prison for preaching Jesus against the mandates of certain officials? What does Romans 13 actually say? Has anybody read it? It says, let every soul be subject to the governed authorities. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Every soul includes the county commissioners and the governor of the state. Every soul. It begins with the general word for authority. The state is a governing authority. The church is a governing authority. The family is a governing authority. And those authorities complement each other and they all have their own jurisdictions. But not everybody who sets themselves up as an authority is an authority ordained by God, especially when they're in violation of a higher authority or the violation of a contract that we the people have covenanted together to live under. So we must appeal anytime 
uh, that, that happens. We must oppose any time that higher authority is, is violated. Paul continues in Romans 13, for there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And later he gets specific and uses the narrower word for ruler or judge or magistrate. And he says, God has given the ruler the sword. God has uh, given the the ruler, the right to levy taxes, and you must pay the civil magistrate his taxes. Those are the applications of that. But he is God's minister, whether he realizes it or not. And all you have to do is read the Bible to see what happens when he opposes God, when he exalts himself as God, or stretches out his hand against God's people. You're being catechized to not think through any of that, just to blindly obey whatever you're told without asking, who are you and by what authority are you telling me to do this? Why do you get to demand this? You're being catechized to believe that suffering and sickness are unthinkable possibilities, that we don't ever deserve to be sick. And if we're sick, then we certainly can't die because death is such a foreign concept. Death is the worst thing that can happen because for the secularist and the materialist, death is the end of the line. Death is the end of you. No, Death is not the worst thing that can happen. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. There is something worse than physical death. Hebrews 2 said, Jesus has delivered us from the fear of death, which is slavery. 1 Corinthians 15 says, the sting of death is sin, but Jesus has taken out the stinger so that you're no longer under the tyranny of death, which leads to sin. The tyranny of death leads to faithlessness and fear. Jesus says in John 5, that whoever believes in him has already passed from death to life. Make that your starting point. Fear of death has no power over me, much less fear of illness, because my life is hidden with Christ in God. You're being catechized to accept a messianic view of government when it is your government's role to protect you from everything because you can't be trusted to care for yourself. You can't be trusted to care for your neighbor. You have been catechized to believe that staying home saves lives as if that's within our power, that that we're able to eliminate almost all risk and that the ultimate goal here is a risk-free life. You see, if staying home saves lives, then what happens when you go outside? What are you? You don't love your neighbor. You're a murderer if you go outside, if staying home saves lives. That's how you're viewed. That's how you're viewed by the real murderers. I was was told by another local official with quivering voice how they are just so serious about protecting the precious gift of human life. And she said this with, with a straight face, in a city where every day babies are dismembered and pulled from their mother's wombs. That's acceptable, that's normal, that's healthcare, that's compassionate, but if you wanna live your life and go to work and take your kids to play at the park, you're a murderer. When you get home today, Google the psychological term projection. That's what's going on, projection. They're projecting their murderous intents and their murderous hearts onto you. And you're being catechized to believe that you are the one with your values upside down while they call evil good and good evil. You're being catechized to accept any harassment and conform to any inconvenient 
inefficient, ridiculous new social standard, no matter how petty, no matter how trifling, so long as it has the banner of science hanging over it. You couldn't shop at this little store with a couple of people, but you can shop at that big store with lots of people where you have to stand in line and go through the same door. Why? Why is that? Well, because science. Follow the arrows. Because science. You can't eat at that picnic table, but you can put your lawn chairs up over here. Why? Because science. You can walk on the beach, but you can't sit down on the beach. Why? Because science. You could get a Big Mac handed out of the window at McDonald's on Easter, but I couldn't give you communion in your car through your window on Easter. Why? Because science. Don't worry. Don't question. Don't think for yourselves. The high priests of all knowledge have this all figured out for you. All you have to do is comply. 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 And if you don't comply, well, we're going to take back whatever liberties we gave you two weeks ago. You better behave. Don't make me turn this car around. My version of science must be your religion. It must guide your life. Now, someone may listen to this and object, what? Wait, 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 you don't believe in science? The response to that is, what do you mean by science? What are you asking? Saying, I believe in science, is like saying, I believe in carpentry, or I believe in sea navigation, or I believe in music theory, which are all methods. They're all disciplines. The scientific method is one discipline by which we discover wonders and understand how things work in God's good world. Do I believe the scientific method is a good thing? Well, absolutely. Is that what you're asking? Do I believe in the scientific method? Sure. All the great uh, early Western scientists were Christians. And the scientific method was not an end in itself, but a means to the end of glorifying God. In The Abolition of Man, C.S. Lewis talks about science as a window through which we view creation. But Lewis was accused of being anti-science, so he wrote, no, science is altogether different from scientism, which is a modern religion. One scholar summarizes Lewis's definition of scientism this way. He says, scientism is the wrong-headed belief that modern science supplies the only reliable method of knowledge about the world and also that scientists should be the ones to dictate public policy or even our moral and religious beliefs simply on the basis of their scientific expertise. That was written in 2013. It couldn't be more relevant today. They are the experts. Who do you think you are to question them? You understand when people talk about science this way, don't you believe in science? They're not talking about the scientific method. They're talking about a religion called scientism. That's what they're asking. They're asking, in whom do you trust? Who is your God? Do you accept this religion, scientism, with all of its core doctrines, including the belief that you weren't created in the image of God, but you evolved from prehistoric protoplasm? The understanding that all you can know is, is what you can observe? The other idea that's about 10 minutes old, that there is no longer much distinction between somebody who has 2X chromosomes and somebody has an XY chromosome. Uh, it's all just based on what you feel. Just believe me. I'm the expert. I've got this all figured out. Trust me. It's science. No, this is not science. This is scientism. And you and your children are being catechized in scientism. Remember, truth invites scrutiny. Lies are totalitarian. People of God, you must reject 
all of these catechism lessons. You must refuse to be guided by the wicked thoughts of disordered, godless, fallen men. There are lots of really difficult things that we have to endure right now. And there are some inconvenient things that are outside of our control and we have to put up with them. But we don't have to get behind them and say, hey, this is a really good idea. This is what I want my life to be like forever. I like this new normal. I'm gonna wave the banner for widespread panic. I'm gonna carry the government's water and everything they say is important and everything they say is true is true. I'm not gonna question it. I'm just gonna do it. No. Rather, it is up to us, church, it is our mission to lead the culture out of darkness into light, out of fear into life. And life is not just staying safe. Life is communion. Life is fellowship. Life is connection. So we must oppose the false catechisms of isolation and idolatry and death as we demonstrate life by following the good shepherd, the resurrected one who gives life, and we must obey his commandments, which we commit to following rather than our feelings. Fear has proven to be way more infectious than any disease, but love is greater than fear. John writes, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Love of God, love of neighbor, love of God's commandments casts out fear fear. And John goes out to say, I'm going to finish with this. John goes out to say, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Did you hear that? Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. The world is not filled with faith. The world is filled with fear. Do not be catechized in the doctrines of fear. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Right now, more than ever, you are being called to live by faith and to lead by faith and to be a beacon of faith at work and in your family and in your community and in your circle of influence. Put aside your fears. Let not your heart be troubled. Love the Lord Jesus and keep his commandments because faith is the victory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would strengthen us by your spirit and comfort all of our hearts where they may be troubled, where they may be anxious, and give us the confidence that your precepts will never lead us astray. Your commandments will never lead us into a ditch. That we hold tight and embrace the things you have said so that we will be guided by them and not by our feelings. Father, may our society follow in this. As your church takes up this bold duty, Father, grant them hearts of repentance and hearts of faith and not fear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.